again. Good morning. That way I don't have to yell at you too much. Um, just wanted to welcome you to North Wake. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not new here, welcome. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad to be back with you. Um, just so very thankful uh, for two things. One, that there are many elders in this church that can fill this pulpit much better than I can. And I'm very, I've been blessed so much for the last three weeks with Mark preaching um, through the last little portion of Galatians and just very thankful for his diligence there and, and teaching us and, and leading us. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful for the 20 pounds that I have put on in the last uh, few weeks from all the food that has come through my door. Uh, thank you. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us while my wife is healing from surgery. It's just been an amazing, amazing example of the love of the body of Christ to us and to my family, uh, extended family who have been in our house watching all of these people come into our house to clean and to feed and to take care of. And it's just been an amazing testimony of the gospel to my family. So thank you very much. And to those in my neighborhood who keep asking me who all those people are delivering things and mowing my grass and all kinds of stuff. So thank you for that. It gave, it's given me a great opportunity to share the gospel with my neighbors. So do it all the more. Thank you. <laughs> um, I uh, was thinking about our passage today and, you know, it comes toward the middle section of chapter three of Galatians and we've been working through Galatians and um, this section is, is not an easy section to work through. Okay, basically today we're talking about how the promise to Abraham and the law through Moses go together and how they don't go together, uh, both of those things. And so it's not an easy, I mean, we're basically covering 2,000 years worth of redemptive history in about eight verses. So, you know, saddle up, here we go. Um, but I just want you guys to know it's vitally important. So I need you to stick with me. Don't fall asleep in the middle because I'm going to have to go through Paul's argument kind of methodically to get us where I think we need to be at the end of the day. So not heavy on application on the front end, but really heavy on application at the very end. But we got to wade through some sloggy theology to get there. Um, but my hope and prayer is that when we do get there, it will ignite our hearts to worship that we will know the gospel better and we will be better worshipers of God because of it. So with that in mind, let's pray. Let's go and ask God to bless us this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the promised one, the seed, the one in whom all things would be blessed. So God, as we look to the word, would you reveal yourself to us once again? Would you show us your beauty, your sovereignty? How awesome, how amazing you really are. We have sung of it today, but God, help us by the reading of your word and the reflection on it, Lord, to commune with you. And would you change us? 
would you make us into mature and ministering worshipers of God? Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A promise. When you think about that, when you hear the word promise, what, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Broken promises? Experiences in life? Great promises that people kept? What comes to mind? How would you define a promise? These are the kind of things I've been thinking about this week. And I think you can define a promise basically as a declaration that one will do or refrain from something, doing something um, that's specified in this promise. It's a binding declaration from one person to another of their intended action and what they will specifically do. And it started my mind running through the early understandings of what a promise is when you're a kid, how important a promise is. I think I first learned that from my dad. The first time I broke a promise to him, I learned the importance of a promise. I'm really not sure what the first one I broke, but I'm sure it was really early. But my dad held that pretty highly to be a man of your word. When was the first time you made a promise and didn't follow through? Do you remember that? Do you remember, or, or maybe just a, in a time when that happened? When you promised someone, I remember in college, I had a professor that I really loved and he was actually my dad's roommate in college. So there was a connection there. Um, I wanted him to think well of me, and I promised him I would do something. I promised him I would take care of some things, and I was working for him and doing some things at the college, and, and I promised I would do something, and I didn't do it. I blew it off, and I went fishing. I meant to do it. I just spent a little more time fishing than I thought I was going to. We were catching a lot of fish. I couldn't leave. And I remember the next day walking into his office kind of with my tail between my legs and going, uh, Dr. Harper, I, I, didn't get that, I didn't get that done. And I remember the look on his face. He wasn't mad. It was just total disappointment. And I remember, he, I would have just rather him beat me at that point. Um... And I once again was reminded how important it is to keep your word. What's, what's the first reaction you have when somebody promises you something? I'm a cynic by nature. My first, prom, my first reaction is, well, we'll see, won't we? Appreciate it, but I'm already working on plan B because you're probably not going to come through on that one. Isn't that terrible? It's awful. But most of us arrive there because we've been let down so many times. So we'd rather not put our expectations on that because that's really what's so hard about a promise. It takes the expectation off of us, puts it on somebody else, and we have to trust them that they are going to deliver what they've told us they're going to deliver. 
our well-being is then put on somebody else to take care of. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I like to have a little more control over the destiny of what's getting ready to happen. But what, if you will, what if you were imprisoned? What if you were on death row, unable to get out, no way in the world, you were guilty of the crime that you were um, sentenced for, no way of parole, no way out. And someone visited you and told you that you can be free today and all you have to do is believe in the promise of God. That he has sent someone to redeem you, someone who paid your debt, and if you believe, you will be set free today. That sounds like a good plan. I like that plan. I'm really interested in that. But then soon after that, another group of people come by. And they say, yeah, you do need to believe. That's, that's a good thing. And that will get you out of this cell. But you better take this shovel as well. You better take this shovel as well so that you can finish the job when you get out into the out, around the outer wall. Not denying that, but just add a little bit of your own work to it. So what will you trust? What will you trust your freedom and your salvation to? A promise that someone else is going to deliver that? Or will you choose to put your trust in a promise and your shovel, your own work, your own ability to dig yourself out. This is where the Galatians found themselves. Would they trust in the promise? Would they trust in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Or would they trust in grace and works? What would you do? How would you react? Paul, through this entire chapter, has been laying this out. And, and Mark, like I said, has done an amazing job of helping us work through this. But there's a, there's a question at the beginning of the chapter. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And this is what I want. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you start with the promise and then pick up a shovel? What is going on? What is going on? How? You see, it happens to us all the time. And when we pick up a shovel in order just to perfect what God has started with a promise, we nullify the grace of God and we dishonor the work of Christ. And not only is justification our right standing before God by faith, 
so is our sanctification, our being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that's what trips us up most often, is we begin with the promise, with grace. We're justified by grace, but we're going to sanctify ourselves. We're going to work hard, clean ourselves up, dig ourselves out of the bondage we're in. Paul teaches in the second part of chapter 3, in the second paragraph there, 6 through 9, that the only way to be a child of Abraham, to be connected to this blessing and promise, is to have the same faith that Abraham demonstrated. And that was not, they did not come to Abraham by any kind of merit or thing that he did. It was just to believe God. It was not putting... um, faith in our works, but it was putting our faith in God's work, what God had done. And then finally, last week, we talked about the misuse of the law and legalism and reliance on works that leave us really under the curse still, not benefactors of the blessing. And we figured out and saw through Paul's argument that really Christ came to redeem people like you and me from the curse of the law, that this is the gospel. He, Jesus, the Son of God, became a curse for us. And the result is that instead of a curse, we now inherit the blessing of Abraham. That is, we receive the Spirit when we trust Christ. And so when we come to the passage today, this is the framework in which he's still arguing. He is still putting forth his explanation of the truth of the gospel. That it is namely that salvation is a free gift of God received through faith irrespective of human merit. And so when he picks up this section, he begins with these first three verses of this section and he is arguing that the law does not annul the promise. And he's taking us all the way back to Abraham again and explaining. And it's amazing, in verse 15, what does he call them first off? He calls them brothers. He hasn't done that since the beginning of the book. He's called them foolish. He's called them bewitched. He's called them all kinds of other names, but he's not called them brethren. It's an intimate, endearing, he starts this part, he's really endearing himself back to the believers at Galatia. And he's saying, brothers, listen. Listen to me. Listen to me. Paul's opponents were not ready to admit that Abraham was justified by faith in God's promise. But even if he was, they might argue that the giving of the law came at a later time and changed the basis of man's entrance into salvation. Paul starts his rebuttal to such an argument with an everyday illustration, something that everyone would have common knowledge of, a human will, a covenant between two people, particularly this will being binding, that after it's ratified, the way that the will disperses in inheritance was not to be changed. And you and I understand that, don't we? Even as crazy as it might sound, it's not to be changed. The inheritance are to be dispersed in the way that the will legally says they are. 
And Paul uses that illustration even though it sounds really crazy that the inheritance and the blessing of God would come only through a promise and really not have anything to do with what you and I do. That sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? Almost like these. Listen to this. A man named E.J. Halley of Memphis, Tennessee had much, much money. And he liked the bottle. But when he died in 1910... His will was read. It revealed that Haley left his money to everyone and anyone he felt had done him a kind service throughout his lifetime. As generous and compassionate as that sounds, the way that these bequeaths came about were rather odd. For example, he left the cook at the hospital that he frequented $5,000 for taking the snakes out of his soup. And he gave another five grand to a nurse who got rid of the pink monkeys in his bed. Another crazy will involves a lady called the Countess Carletta Leibenstein who died in 1991. And in her will, the Countess left her beloved dog, Gunther III, a tidy sum of $80 million. The canine later later sired an offspring called Gunther IV. And the inheritance allowed these two pets to live in a mansion full of luxuries for their entire life. Here's, Here's my favorite. A California man named Robert Brett loved to smoke cigars. Unfortunately, his wife didn't share his passion and prohibited Brett from smoking in their house his entire life. When Brett died in 1997 as a multimillionaire, he left his whole entire estate to his dear wife with one string attached. If she wanted the money, she had to smoke five cigars a day for the remainder of her life. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. In Genesis, God promised an inheritance to Abraham And his descendants, a promise, as Paul has already shown us, not based on Abraham's meritorious deeds, lifelong obedience, or indeed anything other than God's own gracious pleasure. You see, the promise, the covenant was given to Abraham with no addendums and no strings attached. God simply said, I will give you a seed. I will give you the land. And in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Abraham simply believed that God would do what he had promised. And it was accredited to him as righteousness. Paul's point here is that the promise of justification through faith first made to Abraham is permanent. If human covenants or wills are binding, even though they may sound crazy, how can there be alterations to the solemn promise made to Abraham and his seed by the living, sovereign God of the universe? Verse 
Verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to the one. To your seed, that is, Christ. Paul is more worried here about what happened after Abraham and draws attention to the singular use of seed in Genesis 13, 15 through 16. His argument is not concerned with the fact that Abraham's descendants became a nation and they, were, they persisted through the centuries. It is con- he is concerned with one thing and that is God's chosen one, the seed that was promised, the seed that would come, Jesus Christ that Jesus appeared in due course and that the covenant God made with Abraham centered on him. The promise was embodied in the Redeemer through who the fullness and the blessing would come. Paul leaves no room for confusion in this passage. No room for wrong interpretation The seed, that's Christ. Make the connection for you. You missed it. He's making the connection for you. Okay, it's very clear, black and white. Jesus is the promised one. He is the seed. And no one can attain the inheritance of God, the blessing of God, the promise of God, salvation outside of him. If you go back to what we learned last week through Mark's preaching, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So he took on our curse in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And just once again, in case we missed it and we're not tracking along with him, he, said, he just clarifies. Puts a clarifying statement there for you. What I'm, say, I'm not saying, that, what I'm saying is this, okay? The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on the law, is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the meaning of verse 18 is this, and the crux of this, these three verses together is this. If the inheritance, if salvation comes to us or can be achieved by means of the law or just merely keeping commandments, then the way of salvation would not be by the promised Christ. Christ would not be needed had the inheritance already been attained, but God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise, namely the Christ. And once again, back to earlier, making the same point that he made in chapter two, verse 21. If I do not not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, if we go back to this verse um, 18, there's a word in there, it says granted, that God has granted it to Abraham or given to Abraham. This is hugely important, 
hugely significant. The word that Paul uses there is based on the root word for grace. And it is in a perfect tense. So what in the world does that mean? It means this, that salvation is both a free gift and it is permanent. God saved Abraham through a promise, not the law. And that is still God's mode of operation to this day. Well, that's great, Paul. That's wonderful. God's still working by grace, still living out his agenda through the promise that he gave to Abraham. But what do we do with the law? What is that all about? And Paul sees that question coming. And he puts forth in this next section, verses 19 through 22, he's arguing the fact that the law actually illumines the promise and makes it indispensable. So in verse 19, he says, why then the law? Or why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, the middle of that verse and in verse 20, there's a lot that is kind of hard to discern. Basic idea is this, that God ordained the law through angels in the agency of a mediator, which is Moses, and that once again, the promise is better because God initiated his promise personally, individually. To Abraham. But that's not what I want us to focus on. What I want us to focus on is this. Why the law? The law was added because of transgressions. The law was not given to bestow on us salvation. The law was given to show us our need for it. Our need for the promise. The fact that you and I can't pick up a shovel and dig ourselves out of our sin. It's not going to happen. We can't do it. We can't fulfill the law. You see, one of the theologians I read this week said this, and I thought this was really good. When thinking about this, he said, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law or by works. Satan would have us think that we could prove ourselves holy by that, which God gave this law to prove us Sinners. Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave us to prove us sinners. You see, the main work of the law was to expose sin. In other words, to make our sin a legal offense. To clarify what was pleasing to God, what was honoring to God, and what was not. And that every sin was a revolt against the will of God and the authority of God. The law then came to us to show us to be sinners. So Paul preempts the next question. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise 
by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Salvation alone, through faith alone. Paul sees a divine purpose in all of this. He sees that scripture tells us a story where all of us are shut up under sin so that God's blessing might be given to the believers. Sin is personified in this passage as a jailer, keeping all of humanity bound. Bound and in slavery and unable to free themselves. Each of us, unable to break our own chains by our own merit, we are imprisoned under sin. This, however... Paul says, is by design. God has a redemptive plan that he is working out. And the law is part of that plan. John Stott writes, not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need for the gospel to bind our wounds. Not until the law has arrested us and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Freedom, salvation comes to sinners who see themselves for what they are, sinners. The law is grace to us because it shows us that we cannot live perfectly before God. We cannot attain righteousness on our own. And when we realize that, we look to the promise, to the promised one. Helpless, defeated, we come. Broken, despairing. And Jesus, the seed, the promise, gives us the blessing of Abraham when we believe. So, what in the world does all that mean for us today? Do you really believe the promise of God Do you believe that salvation only comes through grace and faith in the one who God promised would come and be broken in our stead, who would die, who would fulfill the law perfectly and be our atoning sacrifice and be raised again on the third day? Do you believe in that promise? Or do you believe with a shovel? Do you fall to the temptation that, yeah, it's it's good to believe, that's a great way to start, to live by faith, but I'm gonna work all this out so that I'll be approved before God. I'm gonna do my duty so God sees me and appreciates me. Or just in case the promise isn't quite perfect, I'm going to add these things here. 
When you do that, Paul says, you nullify the gospel. You nullify the grace of God found in Christ. That this has always been God's plan. And this is always what he's been working out. That faith comes to you, the blessing, the inheritance of God comes to you through belief and faith in Christ. So, here's what I'm saying to you today. Brothers and sisters, stop it. Stop digging. Put the shovel down. It's still about a promise. It's still about Jesus being the one and only who came to fulfill the promise of God. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is done. Do you trust in that? Will you live by the promise? Or will you fall to the heresy of the Judaizers, that it's the promise plus my good merit, my good works. Paul is clear. It's all about a promise, that a promise is still a promise. And the reason why you and I have hard times about promises is because all of it is based on the experience of fallen man. You see, a promise is only good as the character of the one who makes it. And most of us have a hard time with promises because we get a lot of promises thrown at us from fallen men, fallen women who can't fulfill. But God is perfect. He is holy. He is sovereign. And you trust and put your faith solely in his promise because of who he is and what he has done. And that ought to make you and me worship. So let me pray for us and let's do that. Lord Jesus, would you help us to turn and repent of those things we add to the promise? Those things that we don't quite trust you on and will handle ourselves or do so we can clean ourselves up. God, help us to repent of those things, to turn and by faith Walk in the spirit and may may we be transformed by your gospel so that we can walk in obedience to the law as an act of worship, but not as an act of legalism. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?